Hello, everyone. Welcome to Word with Dave Clay. We're in the middle of a series of episodes on the podcast concerning trans kids. And the article that we're referencing is uh, taken from Psychology Today, October of 2022. What parents of trans kids want to know? Last podcast, we asked the question, question number one of the ten. The article is by Devon Fry, by the way. When a child first tells their parents that they're transgender or non-binary, their parents have questions, often these ten. And as I was saying... Last podcast, we asked question number one, which was, did we cause this? And the question, of course, is taken from, as the article's title suggests, a parental perspective, point of view. The article uses as its subject Noah Stutman, who was experiencing gender dysphoria, spoke with his mother and father about it, and uh, At some point along the way, by opening up and talking about his concerns, Noah's that is, uh, he began to make changes. And uh, with this, felt much more, as the article pointed out, happy and gregarious. He became a very confident, well-adjusted kid. And this is according to uh, Noah's mom and dad. Outside of the general question, is this real? That was the first thought to course through Dana Stutman's mind when her youngest child, Noah, disclosed to his parents that he didn't feel like a girl, though he was assigned female at birth. Dana, the daughter of an endocrinologist, understood more than many that some people experience deep discomfort with the sex they were born as and seek treatment to rectify the disparity. Still, the incongruence experienced by her father's patients felt abstract and unknowable until she heard the child she spent nearly a dozen years raising expressed the same kind of distress. Until you experience it personally, the reality of it is hard to grasp, says Dana, who lives with her family in New York City. Accepting it takes a leap of faith. In recent years, hundreds of thousands of children and teens in the U.S. alone have shared that their internal experience of their gender known as gender identity, did not align or does not align neatly with the physical sex characteristics they were born with. Some, like Noah, are transgender. Their physical and felt gender or genders do not match, and they take any of an array of steps to change their gender expression. Others are non-binary. They don't identify with either the male or female end of the gender spectrum. Still more are gender fluid. The gender which, which, with which they identify is flexible or changing. Again, the article is written by Devon Fry. Once more, when we asked the question, the first question, or addressed, we didn't ask it, supposedly vicariously by proxy the article, if you were the parent, this might be the question you would ask, did we cause this? And the answer to the first question was often even the most supportive parents can't shake a nagging question. Was it something we did? Our unconditional answer is absolutely not, says Daniel Schumer, a pediatric endocrinologist at Mott Children's Hospital and associate professor at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Gender identity is not something a parent can cause to be different or to change. 
A better question for parents to consider, why am I asking this? At this question, at the question's root, is often a desire to explain what feels at a gut level like an aberration, says psychologist Laura Anderson, who works with non-gender or with gender non-conforming kids in her Hawaii practice. We cannot minimize the lifetime of conditioning against this, emphasizes Ken Page, a New York-based psychotherapist. Did we cause this? <laughs> Question number one. Obviously, the experts go on to uh, report no. Uh, I took that as with summary, and I'm not going to read the entirety of the answer to that particular question as much use what I have read as a pretty basic summary of the position. You can go back and listen to last week's podcast if you want the, uh, I guess, the full answer and then how we got into this conclusion. But I'm not entirely sure that it's all genetics. It's <laughs> a short version of last week's podcast. Uh, it could be strongly influenced by genetics. It might be predominantly influenced by genetics. But the question's answer Gender identity is not something a parent can cause to be different or to change. Again, as quote of Daniel Schumer, the pediatric endocrinologist at Mott Children's Hospital, an associate professor at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, I would not say that so conclusively as to rule out social influences. And with that, the whole concept of socialization. And though uh, Dr. Schumer, I would guess, is an endocrinologist, uh, he, he seems to be negating some of the real basic premises of psychology. And that is, it's not entirely a matter of physiology, uh, genetics. It is combined with social dimensions, uh, concepts such as identity itself and the formation of identity, which is more a psychological operation and may be somewhat out of the purview of uh, Dr. Schumer and his experience and training. But I need to go back and just say, but they did also ask opinion of psychologist Laura Anderson and then also psychotherapist Ken Page who seem to agree. Uh, furthermore, there's a psychologist by the name of Melissa Cypersky at Vanderbilt University Medical Center's Pediatrics Transgender Clinic advising, and I quote, it's not something that happened to them. I'm not sure where that comes from, from those that otherwise would be specialists in psychology. Not doubting that it's not a sound opinion or that their opinion is without merit or invalid. <laughs> it's not mine to question that. They've studied the data, they've looked at it, and they've come to that interpretation. But to say it that confidently, that was my contention. And especially if it seems to, at least superficially in appearance, go against what we've come to conclude over all of the <laughs> years, now generations even, of psychological study and thought uh, to the place that we are today in terms of current 
psychological thinking or theory on human development and in particular again such psychological constructs as a sense of self and with that identity I'm not sure where the evidence would be I would be open to having some input as to where to go to find the the most recent data uh, on that but I also as we go through the following questions, the additional questions, questions 2 through 10, it's going to continue to be repeated. We're not sure what the cause is. We're not sure what the cause is. We're not sure what the cause is. And I thought it was a bit, a little bit premature, a bit premature to rule out the psychosocial, the sociological factors, and who most primary to socializing a child than the parents. So the idea that gender identity is not something a parent can cause to be different or to change, that's not true. <laughs> Some would even say, and myself included, and maybe in, again, more historical or past tense, most of us would have agreed that really is what socialization is about, embracing a particular identity associated with one's particular gender. That's how we came up with the term gender identity. Now, if the point is, is that somehow we are in a position where we can modify that and change what we think about our gender, then we'll just have to redefine it. But even that seems to be as much a social exercise as it would be genetically encoded. I'm not sure in terms of genetic encoding such social, psychological sort of concepts, not only of self, but also our kind of relationship to gender in a social, cultural sort of way as we've come to, to identify it with such terms as male and female. That does not sound like that's something that's genetically encoded. That sounds like it's something that we've created for the sake or the convenience of our society, uh, for social function. And I would in that then, real basic of premises, question how confidently we could say that it wasn't influenced socially. So this brings us then to question number two. Psychology Today, October of 2022. And in that, uh, what parents of trans kids want to know. What causes this? Now again, did we cause this? The answer is no, and then an answer was given as to what caused it. So we're going to ask then the second question as if we need another answer or the repeat of the first, the answer that was given to the first question, but we'll do it. <laughs> the article does it, so we'll follow the course. What causes this? It may not satisfy parents to hear that the person underlying gender fluidity remains little understood. Excuse me, the process underlying gender fluidity remains little understood. As do those underlying gender identity in general. As do those underlying gender identity in general. Genetics are likely implicated, says Schumer as well as hormonal exposure in the fetal environment. But ultimately, gender identity, identity is a characteristic that normally exists in a diverse way across the human condition. Sounds factual. Gender diversity has always existed. It shows up across cultures. It's not unique to today's youth. Sounds factual. Those are my commentary. That's my commentary. Why then... Added. Why then do gender nonconforming kids seem to be everywhere now? 
It's a question. Kind of rhetorical, but still fairly literal. A recent report by UCLA's Williams Institute found that approximately 300,000 U.S. youth currently identify as transgender, nearly twice as many as previous estimates. That increase may be only apparent due to improved data gathering. Well, maybe we've missed then this phenomenon for however many years. Uh, as you might want to trace back, I suppose you could go all the way back to the, the beginning of the human species, or at least our awareness of us, ourselves, humans, and how we come to define ourselves. But it does seem like that might be something that, in and of itself, is a bit of a reach, maybe factual, but the implications are that we've got this wrong from the very beginning, and how do we know that? I mean, just because we woke up one morning, so to speak, or one day, so to speak, and said, oh, we've got this wrong, it's a little difficult to go back and question how we got here so much as it's taken so long to get here. Now, we can say it's all wrong and we just need to change it, but who's making that decision? Is that genetically encoded or is it just our reflections upon the phenomenon? Are we providing an answer to a phenomenon, <laughs> gender dysphoria, that seems convenient in this sense? It would be so easy just to say it's all a matter of genetics, and the genetics says that we're maybe not so much than male or female, or that there's some aspect of genetic encoding that leaves a good portion or percentage of children, now adults, that's ever-increasing, by the way, uh, and that in that sort of way, new phenomenon or at least a new wrinkle that we need to examine and maybe we just need to create another category, uh, gender <laughs> unidentified. Uh, or maybe all of this is just that, that we're recognizing, oh, there's another gender, it's non, I guess, identified. <laughs> And I might go with that. But I'm not sure, though, you could even do that without reflecting upon it. And to seem to say that that's the answer without really a very thorough analysis or study seems, again, to risk that we may be ascribing something to genetics when really all genetics gives us is a potential and that it's all along been up to us to socially define it. And if that's true, I, again, would accept that. I would say, okay, is there enough consensus that we want to somehow redefine it? Have we somehow changed our social practices such that now we have created, so to speak, through parental influence, by the way, or at least primary social agents, socialization agents, significant others, primary caretakers, who during the early stages of life have then put upon the child this definition. Kids don't, aren't born in this world with a definition of male-female. That's something that is socially ascribed, that we teach them that. It's based on a cultural model of, uh, and a social model of interaction and dynamic between these obvious two physiologically different Creatures. Well, we're, I guess, the same creature. We just have different anatomical parts. That's what I want to say. But that doesn't necessarily mean that 
that was wrong, it just means, okay, we've decided to change the rules. We've decided to redefine it, but we don't need to resort to something like, well, it's just the way it is and nobody has any input then into defining it. And maybe the confusion that we've created is because we've decided to change the rules and, and the definitions. And we now have to sit down and come up with a, a group of or a bunch of or some sort of a, a list of new terms to capture this. And, and again, to say that, if that's what this is about. But I don't know that that's science as much as it is labeling. And I don't know that the labeling is really genetically encoded or science, except that if enough of us would agree upon it, I suppose you can make the case that this is different and with that then the reality, but that still seems to be two-foot itself. Although, a couple of podcasts ago, I argued that point. Everything is trans, and so it's all open to definition, but is it an absolute, and should we present it in an absolute way? And should the best answer be to mess with something that's somewhat much more ecologically so has, has evolved? Uh, is it going to be expedient? Is it going to be beneficial? And maybe that's the reason that we're seeing so much gender dysphoria is because now all of a sudden we're presenting all these different options and that basically... <laughs> A child's way of conceptualization and trying to figure out or make the choice is not the same way as an adult's. And true, it does seem like everything and anything then could go. Some things are just, again, not only ecologically, I guess, advantageous, but maybe evolutionarily so. Maybe this whole gender identity thing was to support procreation in some manner or method or to allow the two different sort of creatures, they're one and the same, we're all human, but they have different anatomical features and some would say even at some level somewhat of an innate personality difference. But even that's a bit questionable because how did we get to that point of personification of what is otherwise just physiological facts? Well, it's inference. It's attribution. It's our best efforts to explain it. But it's not that one is right and one is wrong. It's not that everything that we've taken up to this point would be wrong. It's just we need to understand. It's a matter of labeling then. Somehow we're making this into something, though, that is, has them with the possibility of gender fluidity and, and being able to change one's gender, either biochemically or through some surgical procedure, to match up to your identity. That starts to somehow put us in a position of changing reality. And that's why I get back to that notion. We just need to make sure this is not going to disrupt procreation. Survival of the species. Darwin's essential premise to the evolution, evolutionary model, evolution of the species. It's got to be adaptive. It has to assist us in terms of survival. And should it not, and we're going around changing it so radically so quickly, maybe that's a little too soon, too fast. Maybe we need to slow the process down. What has shifted is cultural perspective on gender identity, says psychologist Melinda Wald. 
Clinical Director of the Gender Identity Program at Columbia University Medical Center. The understanding that gender is on a spectrum, that one's gender and sex assigned at birth may not correspond and that one doesn't need to fit into particular stereotype is a much more dominant view now than it was even a few years ago, she says. And I would agree with that. It seems factual. This has caused a lot of people to pause and think more critically about who they are, not who they were told they are or who they think they should be. Again, seems to be a very logical sort of conclusion to draw from the facts. This more nuanced understanding has paralleled heightened visibility. TV shows, (laughs) covers of Time magazine, Congressional confirmation of the first openly transgender government official, Rachel Levine, U.S. Assistant Secretary for Health. That representation, says Cypersky, excuse me for mispronouncing her name, helps create a sense of safety and confidence, and it can put language to a child's experience that they may not have heard before or had before. The increased visibility has a downside. It has stimulated fears of contagion, that transness can spread from person to person, and that teens are especially vulnerable. It's true that a child may see a trans or non-binary peer and recognize something that resonates with them, Anderson says, but the idea that social influence can make a child start a journey that was never going to be theirs and stay on it is a myth. Wald notes, the social contagion theory is not supported by scientific evidence. So, (laughs) by authority of TV shows, covers of Time magazine, congressional confirmation of the first openly transgender government official, there's evidence then to suggest that somehow this isn't a social matter at least a sociological or social psychology matter that corresponds with the formation and development of identity that has all along been something that we have studied and that science and research has studied and that there's empirically sound evidence to support. They're just changing the labels and the names. And then they're saying that if you hold on to other causes or reasons like Possibly we've diversified in terms of our perspective or we want to include a non-binary category of non-identified gender. That's really what's causing all this. Now, again, the merits of that are purely sociological or social. And factor by, is it adaptive? Or will it turn out to be maladaptive? No one knows. But to say simply because we say that it's genetic You can't say that unless you can prove that. That's the core of science. (laughs) This sound research model, this higher order of thinking we call science. You have to offer it as a hypothesis and test it. Where is the testing? Where is the data that supports that? And should there be data, and again, I'm not disagreeing with the hypothesis. It's a worthy one to pursue. Test it. Figure it out. 
but also recognize if you test it and figure it out, there may be implications that go along with it and that the phenomenon of gender dysphoria may have always been there because there may not have been sound models of male and female and then that compared to, as with, again, historical reference, the old way of saying it, the old way of socializing, defining it culturally, socially, for the sake of maintenance of society and possibly supporting procreation. (laughs) It may be necessary to do that or refine that in such a way that we get along with each other and we can create offspring. You can say, well, that shouldn't affect it. Well, if you're starting to change physiology, that affects it. If, If you change gender and you can't have a baby... (laughs) <laughs> then, then there's one less baby. Now you may, oh, that's great. The world is overpopulated. We don't need more babies. Okay, that's, that's okay. That's a personal decision. But I don't know that that in any sort of empirically, scientifically sound way, I don't know that we have enough data to support that. We have opinions. And our opinion is very biased by our cultural perspective. I agree. But the idea of contagion... And the notion that somehow that others are going to pick up on this and that that's not true. I do understand that at core you can't necessarily pick up an attitude or belief genetically. That's my argument. But it's transmitted socially and if you're going about changing the actual factuality. The only thing that is real and factual, which is what the genetic material gives us in terms of whatever you want to call formerly known as male, formerly known as female, for the sake of procreation, you're going to be creating problems, understanding how the two are going to relate, at least until you get all of this done. And then you communicate that in a mass sort of way, contagion sort of way, so that we all know, oh, you used to call that male, now you call it this, you used to call that female, now you call it that, and this is how we get together and have babies. And this is how we bring up healthy adults who know how to then take whatever is genuinely genetically encoded, transmitted, even if it should have some psychological dimensions. I'm not entirely sure personality can't be encoded, but let's understand it. I'm not even sure we're at a point where we can say that conclusively. And again, if there's evidence and research and knowledge out there, we need to know about that in in this kind of public way and in this open-for-all-to-see way. But TV program shows and covers a Time magazine and congressional confirmation of a first openly transgender government official is not enough credibility, any more credibility than just throwing out Mott Children's Hospital or Daniel Schumer, who's an endocrinologist who says this, or Ken Page, a New York-based psychotherapist, or Melissa Sipersky, a psychologist at Vanderbilt University Medical Center's pediatric transgender clinic. Because up until these individuals began to do this in this sort of way and come to these conclusions, nobody was saying that. Now again, maybe we need to study it, but if there's anything that seemingly is contagion right now, it's that our children, who aren't capable of doing this without us, and us would be primary socialization, Parents, primary caregivers, secondary socialization, schools, public schools, private schools, universities, cultures, 
that otherwise would then be available in immediate proximity and available for them to be exposed to, those are, that is, those are the socialization agents. And it's possible that all of this stuff, as much as we would be speaking of it in such general terms, we call transgender, trans kids, who's to say we're not putting that on those children or creating the confusion because we don't like whatever we've come to as a society and we want to change it. If we're going to change it, then we need to figure out how to uniformly change that without destroying our culture and without risk of ceasing to reproduce. Oh, I'm sure we'll figure out some way to get around that. I believe humans are adaptive. But why create more problems? And then if we're left to fix those problems, it seems once more, going back to the previous podcast, such an easy thing to do to say, well, it's just, just genetic and you are somehow misinformed or uneducated about science and the scientific methodology and the scientific model and we're the experts and we're claiming that it is and you just have to believe that. I'll believe it when you supply me the evidence, when you can show me the research, when you can point that out and show, not only in an immediate sort of way, because I do think that when you're a child, even as the story references a 15-year-old and you're suffering gender dysphoria, and you're really uncertain because of whatever reason, whether you want to be a girl or a boy, or maybe it just seems appealing to be a girl, maybe you have a better relationship with maternal, what was traditionally seen maternal female sort of family members. I mean, there's just all sorts of reasons, but those aren't discounted. You can't discount those just for the sake of a quick answer and making people feel good in an immediate sort of way. That was last podcast. I could do that. I think it's unethical because it's not up to me. It's up to them. But informed consent is they get all the information for what it really truly is, not what I want to bias them with, not what I want to offer, even if it makes them feel good and they think I'm the greatest psychotherapist, psychological counselor in the world. I'm not sure that would fix it. You might say, well, it all doesn't matter because it's all social anyhow. And, you know, in the end, the social is very fluid. It's what we think it is. What is truth? It's whatever you think it is. It's whatever your interpretation of the facts are. Okay, but at least say that so that a lot of low self-esteem, <laughs> uncertain individuals who may not really have much confidence when it comes to such things are, are just as they've been brought up to believe, trusting the experts who are purportedly then the purveyors of not necessarily simply transgender or trans kids, but of science, the proponents of science, the ambassadors of science. Just because they're telling you that and people have been conditioned, trained, socialized to trust you. Uh, that's not right. That seems to be implicitly not only not right, but very much wrong. Question three. Is it just a phase? Psychology Day, October 2022, Devon Fry. 
probably not. In a sample of more than 300 transgender youth, 94% continued to identify as transgender after five years, according to a study published recently in pediatrics. Just 2.5% had reverted to a cisgender identity. The remainder identified as non-binary. It does seem to be more common for a child's gender identity to settle somewhere else on the spectrum than they originally thought than for a child to cease identifying as gender diverse altogether, Wald says. Though more is currently known about younger children, then why not younger children? They're the ones that are most vulnerable. <laughs> you tell them something and they believe it. If you're a good parent, or if you've got the kind of relationship that's necessary to socialize a child, they look to you to define them, to identify them. It's circular thinking to say that somehow I've defined them that way, and now they define themselves. And really, that was a critical stage. All we mean by critical is it was a very important stage in the formation of identity, those earliest stages, what your parents tell you is very, very important. Or primary caregivers tell you is very, very important. It has everything to do with self-esteem. It has everything to do with formation of identity. Those are going to be the ones that have drank the so-called Kool-Aid. And they're going to tell you what either you want to hear or what they've heard or what others have told them. So you really can't say that is genetics until you can establish that. Study that. That's a hypothesis. I've offered a, a, an alternative hypothesis to the genetic model. It's called socialization. It's what we do to preserve the social order in society. It makes all the other stuff, the more, I guess, concrete things such as anatomy, fit together rightly, no pun intended. But you can't validate that on the basis of what you've told a child. Well, what do you think? And even if you measure that longitudinally, five years is not really down the road much. And with that then, if they do get a chance to get to the point of questioning that, it's going to take a little while longer. And if you constantly reinforce this socially through, what was it, television programs, Time Magazine covers, transgender I guess, role models, personifications, celebration, gay pride. Um, it's, you, it's insidious at that point. You're just reinforcing the same. It's hard for them to break rank. Now, some will because there's a rebellious nature to all humans, I believe. And what is that about? You need to test it. You're supposed to test what they told you you were. But if you quit testing it and you only buy into it, and then they start to threaten you with some sort of sanctioning if you don't, if there's some physical dimension of pain that goes with any contrary belief or perspective, there's going to be a lot of people that just give up along the way. We've talked about that the last two podcasts. They're not going to pursue anymore. They're going to say, is it worth it? No, it's not. I'll just keep drinking the Kool-Aid because what does it matter? And I don't know that it matters. I'm just saying nobody knows how much it matters. And then, I guess to be fair, and as they say, balanced, as for the handful who 
cease identifying as gender diverse. Anderson notes, adolescence will always be a time of trying on new selves. Yes, very true. Congratulations. <laughs> That's a really solid statement. It's truthful. There are kids for whom this gender question is part of identity seeking. Yes! Does this resonate with me? They're listening to peer stories and wondering, does this resonate? Yes! It's all factual. Teenage rebellion or familial power struggles may fuel a rare case. No, it's not a rare case. For the most part, it has been the majority up until of late. And what has also happened of late, a lot of social upheaval and a lot of social change, which doesn't invalidate the need for it. I just don't know that I've studied it enough or anybody has. We just seem to feel like we need to change right now, and it's intuitive. Maybe we've become spoiled. Maybe we've had too much. Maybe things have gone smoothly for too long. Maybe the next generation, <laughs> we've finally gotten to that model of the next generation needs to be different. Well, maybe they've found a way to be different that has much farther reaching implications than either drugs or rock and roll music or changing music. I'm not trying to make light of this. I'm just trying to add a common sense lens to this and dimension to this. All those things that Anderson notes is true. But you can't say that and then tell me it's genetic, entirely genetic. Those two parts don't rightly fit together. And simply because you want to support the genetic model, that's experimenter bias. That's subjectivity. That invalidates your opinion, or it's not enough to at least support your opinion until you test it. That's why we test it. That's why we construct models of research, social and individual, cultural, that has measures of validity and reliability. Because if left to the subjectives, People will always run the risk of looking for facts to support their positions and then selling them, uh, promoting them as just that, the facts. When maybe it's just that that's what they expected to find. Or if they found the same thing, that's just what they expected the interpretation would be. And that you get enough people to agree with it and it starts to resonate and you kind of create an, as they say, an echo chamber and it just bounces off the walls, you can brainwash a lot of people by that. I'm not saying this is an exercise in brainwashing. I'm just saying we know through science and research how brainwashing works on a cultural level. You can get people to kill other people simply by calling them bad. You can create false narratives as to justify wars, as to discriminate against certain people, as to claim and believe somehow that we're destroying things that we may not be destroying simply because you've got enough people who are in positions of so-called credibility, who are in sort of general terms or more general terms, recognizable as authority figures, who come from the right places, have the right prefixes and suffixes after their name, and want you to drink the Kool-Aid. You can create mass hysteria. Just look at COVID-19. Whether there was any nefarious element to that or not, I don't know. It's just a lot of people still wear masks. A lot of people still believe certain things they were told that we found aren't factually true. 
More so, the narrative isn't true that we were told. Was it innocently told? Yes, I'm sure it was. Again, I'm not presupposing nefarious intentions. I'm just saying that is evidence on a mass scale in a very short order how we can change a culture. Fortunately, we're returning back to a more normal state. Why is it fortunate? Because it was really disruptive. There's a lot of people who psychologically have had problems with all the isolation and the mask wearing and all the fear that went with COVID. We should have learned something. But this isn't the answer to say, well, let's just try to placate everybody and put a band-aid on everything and make everybody feel really good in the moment they're in. Because in the end, it really doesn't matter because it's not physiological. Or, yes, it is physiological and you can't do anything about it. Those two things don't fit together. Whatever the child's motive, a parent's approach should be basically the same. Get the help of an experienced professional. Okay. (laughs) How do they know? How do you vet that? How do you know? You take them at their word. You take them because there are sanctioning boards or licensure boards. There's ethical considerations should be for whatever profession you're in that would expose the general public to a risk of some harm by misinformation, misdata. But that's not what's going on. What's going on is if there are sanctioning boards, those sanctioning boards are not taking up this cause because the cause seems to, unfortunately, the insidious, the contagion, (laughs) as the article describes it, seems to have crept into all facets of mass media and society, and nobody wants to stick their neck out and say, wait a minute, even that, that's a moderate position. Wait a minute, let's just take a look at it. More so, if you do that, you could risk careers. People got fired, discharged from their jobs for not taking the vaccine. You could argue the merits of the vaccine, But the merits of the vaccine, as were argued, were factual. But nonetheless, there was a cost. And I don't know that it's fair or it's right, or that that in and of itself should not be factored in as a reason why people aren't standing up to this. There's all sorts of money involved. I hate to sound that way, but it's true. There's the government who would probably more be more inclined or has openly been inclined to endorse transgender on what basis? The same basis that they endorsed vaccines, wearing masks, which proved to, again, be mostly false. False narratives, false interpretations. Was it intention? I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that's the example. It's immediate. We're doing the same thing, I believe, if we rush to conclusions If we don't get off this train, so to speak, that's heading for the end of the line, but showing no signs of putting on the brakes, we're going to end up at the same place. And yes, we're resilient. Yes, we're adaptive. Yes, I'm sure we'll survive in some social dimension. Yes, you won't destroy all the people. Yes, some people will hold fast to science and empiricism. But there's going to be a lot of casualties, both physically, in physical terms, but also psychologically as a result of all this. And there are elements in the world that are not as advanced culturally, socially, don't believe in science (laughs) outside of the United States that might 
Otherwise, take advantage of that. I'm not picking a country. I'm not identifying any particular foe. I'm not being paranoid. I am just stating what is an obvious fact. But why would we make ourselves more susceptible to that by destroying ourselves internally, by creating division or deconstructing some social identity, even if it's a worthwhile pursuit, let's do it more carefully. Let's not expose ourselves to undue abuse or risk. I mean, that's another one of those concepts when it comes to psychological counseling. When somebody's defenses are down, when they're broken, when they're worn out, when they're, I suppose, burnout would be probably a better word than worn out, but physically there's exhaustion because of the constant stress, the uncertainty. When you divide families at core, nuclear families between parents and children, when you're dividing gender between male and female, when you pursue certain political notions that have to do with people's genetics, <laughs> the color of their skin, not their human commonalities, but something as minor as the color of their skin, or if you want to speak of that in terms of race, or if you just want to speak in that in terms of percentages, that's a really small element of who we are. We're not focusing upon the things that are common that hold us together, and in that there is safety, there is protection, that's adaptive, social psychology at its best. Why would you risk that by jumping on this runaway train that we know is going to end up in somewhat the same place as the whole COVID mass hysteria ended? And there'll be a lot of people who will look at that and not believe any longer science, who won't trust it any longer, or who will say, how do I know you're not lying to me? How do I know? Vet it for me. Show me. Show me where the science is. And if they can't, then all you can say is, okay, then offer it as an opinion, a hypothesis, go test it. But don't expect me to change based on that until I have evidence, something solid, to prove it. Question number four. Why now? There's a widespread misconception that legitimate trans people always know and express their gender identity from the moment they can walk and talk, notes Cypersky. In reality, someone may realize or come to terms with their transgender or non-binary identity at any point across the lifespan. That said, clinicians do tend to see two broad peaks of gender exploration. One is indeed early childhood. For some children who very strongly identify with the other gender, it becomes clear to them at a very young age and they're able to express that at five or six or seven years old, Schumer explains. Such children may start dressing in the clothes of the preferred gender or using a different name, social transitioning, early on. The second peak occurs around puberty. Someone born female may experience sharp psychological discomfort with their first period. Someone born male may struggle to reconcile their internal self with their first sprouts of facial hair. The propensity for puberty to trigger dysphoria is a key reason pubertal blockers are often a first-line treatment. Uh, 
may I just for a moment, again, commentary, step back and reflect. When is puberty easy for anybody? When does puberty not have all of these sort of physiological changes that also affects your emotions and your emotional regulation and your mood swings and your irritability and your malcontent and your discontent and your lack of confidence? When does that not happen? It seems universally so. You could speak about that in a physiological way and attach anything to it. Any of the milestones of adolescence, including the formation of identity, can be caught up in that. Does that mean then identity is wrong? No, it just means all of that is at base of trying to interpret or feel good about who you are and what you are. And it usually, historically, has not resolved itself until you get through puberty. Now, as far as childhood's concerned, children, I do not think, are born knowing the difference between male and female. They're not even born knowing the difference between themselves and others. Piaget established that. But what that means is, though, that we can't presuppose that in their childhood state, if you read them stories, you tell them about this new creature. You tell them about unicorns. You tell them about fairies. You tell them about trolls. You tell them about monsters. You tell them about all these things. And they're going to believe you. I'm not sure as much as, again, you would tell them stories about gender or gender identity. Sure. They're going to believe it. And they're going to probably believe it wholly because, again, totally, because that's why kids perceive things. And that is, again, innocence. And there's nothing wrong with innocence. What's wrong is if you sell them on that and tell them it's fact and it's truth and it's science, and then they go through puberty, and they're already going to have a moment, even if it was a more traditional model of questioning. I don't know. Am I going to make it as a guy? Am I going to fit in? Do other guys respect me if you're a male? Or in a traditional, again, sort of presentation, am, am I going to make it with females in a good way? Are they going to accept me? Are they going to connect with me emotionally? Do, do I have a chance with the opposite sex? And is that important to procreation? You know, is that how we then get together in that sort of way to to want to be with each other physically because otherwise the act of sex, even though it is incredibly, I guess, powerful as a reinforcer, feels so good. Most people, for some they have sex, there's a bit of a trauma reaction that goes with that. It's a pretty invasive sort of act with two people who really don't know much about it. And there's always a bit of that that goes with it too. Innocence lost. All of a sudden we begin to realize. All of a sudden we begin to see it in different terms in the ideal. The infatuation isn't lost, but it wears off a bit. And I'm not saying it's universal. I'm not saying that it's for everybody. I'm not saying that there aren't individuals with some aberration in terms of genetic composition. I'm just saying Let's make sure that we understand numbers, statistics. What causes, where they come from, is it a genetic, some aberration genetically, which it entirely can be, 
but let's not sell it as everybody and let's not sell it to a group of people that are really not educated or cannot be educated consumers. Children and adolescents don't, again, as with last podcast, a couple podcasts, think as adults. That's why they go to school so they can learn this. But if you don't teach the hypothetical deductive model, you don't teach the scientific model, if you teach it but you hold exemptions or exceptions for it and you don't prove it, and there's social sanctioning that goes with it. And with that, there's already a fear that they don't fit in. They're not going to belong. They can't make their way in the world. They're probably going to, once again, drink the Kool-Aid. Bite of the apple. And once that happens, and it begins to be part of their identity, then they begin to justify that. Well, I did it then, so it must have been what I thought. And I'm not going to deviate now. And they're left with these questions of... Why am I still sad? Why is it that I still don't feel like I fit in? Well, possibly because the world is falling apart when it comes to those kind of social, I guess, measures. And that in and of itself doesn't do anything but create more fear and leave them more vulnerable to influence. Even if they become adults, they don't have the confidence or self-esteem to test it. And certainly they don't have the confidence or self-esteem to speak out against it. That does not seem right to me. Family norms, gender expectations, excuse me, go back. The second a peak occurs, I read that. The propensity for puberty to trigger dysphoria is a key reason pubertal blockers are often a first-line treatment. You know what that is? That's biochemistry. Those are drugs that are given to decrease the sex hormones, or at least the hormones that otherwise come to the continuation of the formation of certain anatomical sorts of parts. Um, There's many other applications. Probably the FDA, as with approval, has approved them for other applications besides gender dysphoria. But they've come to find out you can block estrogen. You can block testosterone. And you can change somebody's gender. But is that genetic? Is that something that is pure and unadulterated? Or is that something somebody has chosen to do? Is that something then somebody does because, well, you just feel this confusion. Let's just go ahead and solve it now. We'll just tell you that it's gender dysphoria. We'll tell you that really all that you're thinking at four, five, six, I think they said five, six, or seven, or as an adolescent, that's true. And we'll then prove it by giving you these things that then take away what has historically resulted in all those physical characteristics that we traditionally have called male or female. But that's not really genetic. Again, it may be for some, but it's not still what we used to call the norm. And norm is a statistical term. It's not an opinion. It's statistics. And we'll probably still have conflict until either we get a sufficient program to encompass everybody. Maybe we'll just do this as we do vaccines. Maybe you'll begin that treatment on some choice or decision that you make. Or maybe somebody else who's a so-called expert will step in and tell you what you should be. Maybe it'll be statistically so, the convenience of our society. We have too many men. We have too many white people. We have too many non-white people. We have too many people of color. So we need to somehow systematically eliminate 
And this is how we're going to do it. We're going to do it through birth control. That's one means of doing it. But that doesn't seem to be working really well. What we really need to do is fine-tune it a little bit more. And let's just go ahead while we're at it and create a society where we remove all of those elements of what we traditionally call masculinity or femininity. And we'll just make everybody gender neutral. And then there won't be any differences. There won't be any conflicts. But most of us who are adults <laughs> realize all of that goes into procreation. It's supposed to be that way. It's fine-tuned ecologically. It's environmentally calibrated with the psychology. And the psychology is intimately, finely calibrated with the genetic composition, the biochemistry. It's taken years and generations from the onset, the conception of the human being. However we got started, at that point of evolution where you could say, that's a human. It's been fine-tuned. Why would you think going in and radically changing it is going to do anything but create more problems? It doesn't make any sense. And you'd be probably considered somewhat ignorant if you bought into it at that level. That's all we're saying. Stay focused on your whole child too, not just their gender. Otherwise, the child ends up feeling as if their whole experience is reduced to being trans. I agree with that. But isn't that the role of the parent? Isn't that what we do anyhow while they're learning? You validate. Well, it may not be that. Let's just wait and see what happens. Which isn't being dismissive or invalidating. It's just saying... We love you, and we're going to support you. And I think that's where most parents really have their greatest question. How do I love them and know that I'm not teaching them? Know that I'm not socializing them, at least in the ways that seemed were given to me, that seems to have worked well, adaptively so, to the end that we're the dominant species on planet Earth. And now all of a sudden, we're deciding we're going to change it because we can Family norms, gender expectations within a community or culture, religious conflict, social stigma, or a fear of rejection could keep kids from confiding their gender distress until they are past puberty. Yes. But at the same time, it could also preserve some sort of misconception. It could keep them from being exposed to healthy dialogue. It could keep them from getting all the facts. It could keep them from hearing something such as what I'm saying and recognizing that the choice has been stolen from them. It could keep them in that submissive sort of role, societal, sociologically, in a societal way, sociologically, and let somebody else who knows better, who has a better plan, who has taken the power from you and wants to change the world. Sometimes they don't have the terminology to describe their experience. Of course not, because we're changing the terminology. Radically so. Sometimes it takes meeting another gender nonconforming person. Once again, I don't know if I'm making the case soundly, but all of these things are arguments for transgender, but they're just what I got through presenting as arguments against the genetics as being the sole determinant 
when it comes to our culture and society. Maybe not so much the individual, but certainly in a more normal context. And if it is individuals, then okay, we just need to accept that. But let's figure out how to determine that before we wreck everything that has worked so well in that more normal sort of way or standard sort of way and gets back to all of those other counterpoints that I've been offering. I've been offering them in point fashion. But here's the counterpoint. Noah, now 15, explored his gender surreptitiously at first, unsure where on the spectrum he fell. He tried out various pronouns among his friends. Oh, let me see what she feels like. Let me see what he feels like. Let me see what they feel like. And when someone called him he for the first time, it felt amazing. Finally, somebody accepts me, he says. Shortly after, on a family trip upstate, one of his parents called Noah by his female birth name. Hearing himself addressed like that really didn't feel right. I realized then that I had to tell them that I was a boy. Again, I don't want to make light of it. I don't want to seem like it's trivial or not important. What I do want to say is there's an awful lot of emphasis upon feelings. And why wouldn't there be? Because that's really all he's got at that point. The cognitive, the mental operations, although online, uh, you'd be hard-pressed to say that he is good at that or has accomplished or mastered that because he's still an adolescent. And most of that work doesn't really stop until you're in your 20s. Fact. Research has established that. Sentinel theory. But if we're going to base this all on feelings, then I would be just as wrong if I made my argument on feelings. But that's why I keep going back to this solid premise. There's no facts to support this yet. I say yet only because I don't know that there won't be. Just show me. Do the research. But until then, let's not make this social policy. Let's not condition people or brainwash people or sell people on notions, even if it seems justifiably so helpful. Don't. It's not. It's not helpful. Hopefully, (laughs) coming across the right way. I'm empowering you. I'm helping you understand. It's your choice. You come see somebody like me, I don't get to tell you what you are. You tell me what you are, and I work with you on changing that. But I get to tell you, just make sure that whatever it is that you think you are is what you are, and let's test it so that we can be empirically sound. And so, in the end, it may prove to be true. If it's not true, then in the end, maybe we'll learn from it. Maybe we'll just make modifications. But also... Maybe we won't corrupt other people if they've taken a more normal course, not such than the abnormal or the aberrant, or as I called the podcast a couple of podcasts ago, deviant podcast. Let's not. It deviates too much. And I'm going to honor you in treating the symptoms if that's what you want. Although I think that we shouldn't create additional problems. And I should, again, with informed consent, give you all the data. I don't want to withhold data simply because I think somehow you're going to feel in an immediate sort of way good about it or you're going to like me better or I'm going to have better results or I can point to how happy you are now and how sad you were then because who knows? Longitudinally down the road, all this stuff may turn out to be the ill that kills 
or causes disease and discomfort to a good bit of our society, if not kills our society. Something to think about. Not forecasting, not predicting, just saying, be sober-minded when you talk about these things. And if you can receive then the podcast within that context, I'd like to invite you back to the next episode of, edition of, Word with Dave Clay. Until then, I always want to wish you good health and good mental health.